0: Hi, everybody. It is, uh, let's see, Thursday, December 10th, 2020, and this is episode, I believe, 57 of the Luke Thomas Live Chat podcast, which is the worst name ever, but it's the name we're going to go with. My name, of course, is Luke Thomas. I am from CBS Sports and Showtime. This is the podcast format in which I do most of my work. This is Morning Combat. Welcome, everyone. I'm actually one half of the Morning Combat duo. We do that three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, so... Uh, My co-host and I, Brian Campbell, will do that tomorrow. But today, it is I, answering all of your questions about what? Life, MMA, movies, things in between, all that good stuff, yes? So please, if you would be so kind, give the video a thumbs up, hit that subscribe button, and uh, we'll get this party started, yes? So, uh, alright, without further ado, let's get going, shall we? Alright, and we are back. As I mentioned, uh, time to get those uh, thumbs up in, the subs in. I'm going to get my glasses ready. Uh, I have not found a way successfully. I know everyone's got like, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to get that. For tips on how to wear glasses without fogging up your, uh, well with, with a mask, without fogging up your lenses. But I have not found a reliable method. And yes, I've read all of the methods you have read. They work some, the the basic issue is they work some of the time, but they don't work consistently. So, you know, I don't wear them as much. Not the mask, but the glasses. All right. There we are. Hope you're doing well. Happy Thursday to you. We're just a couple days out from UFC 256. What else? We have uh, Joshua versus Pulev, which I'm not sure how it's making waves on the other side of the world, but over here, it's virtually none. Um... And what else do we have? We got Bellator tonight. I'll be on CBS Sports HQ following that, along with Brian Campbell. And uh a lot of stuff in between. So a busy, busy week in combat sports. Alright. So every Wednesday I put your a thread up to get your questions. Oops. Turn that off. Jesus. And now I will go get them. Let's see what we have to say. Yeah. Alright. Very good. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, let's kick this off, shall we? Alright, first question. Cast your mind back to when Habib was missing weight. He therefore decides to move to 170. He wins the welterweight title, but along the way loses a match either to a prime Woodley, Colby, or Till. Who at the time were in and around the top five of that division? Would his run at welterweight therefore be as impressive, or if not more impressive, than his unbeaten run to the title At lightweight, and would his popularity stay the same? Is there a McGregor um, like rivalry in that division? Potentially, I don't know who that would be. Like, who is as big of a name as McGregor? Who said the kinds of things that McGregor did to make that um, rivalry what it was? So, no, there is no McGregor like rivalry at 170. I mean, maybe you could say with Colby, but that's not McGregor like. That's McGregor light. You know, that's not. That's not. They're not equivalent or even close. Um, Okay, so would his run at welterweight therefore be as impressive, if not more impressive, than his unbeaten run to lightweight? If he moved up 15 pounds, lost one, but then won the belt? Sure. I mean, that would be either on par or better, because you would sort of give him the wash of the one loss, but the potential major gain of the belt. Uh. Oh you, oh actually excuse me, you're not spotting him the belt uh I don't know about that without the belt, I don't know if it's as impressive. I think remaining unbeaten in your weight class, figuring out your weight issues um and capturing a world title defending it and defending it you know by submitting everybody it's pretty impressive right so hard hard for me to see how going up a weight class and then losing it one more time it goes to one seventy. Uh, excuse me, um, my brain is not functioning properly. Yes, you clearly said he wins the 170 title. Um, mm, it might be more impressive. It might be. Without winning the title, it's not nearly as impressive. Winning it might be that last hurdle that gets it to another level, even if he has the loss along the way. At that point, what would he have? One loss? I mean, St. Pierre had two. Now, St. Pierre avenged both of those, and they were both at welterweight, but still. You're going up a weight class, you only lost one, and you got the belt. Yeah, that might be more impressive. But <clears throat> also would depend how he did it, too, right? How does a mid-20-year-old Luke do in a boxing match against the Paul brothers? I don't know. I didn't do much boxing in mid-20s. I did it in uh, early third. Well, yeah. Late 20s, early 30s. Um, Are are you asking me, do I think that they're good boxers? No, I don't think that they're good boxers. Can they beat guys who had careers in journalism? Maybe. That's probably about the level at which we're talking. Uh, If you had a JRE-type podcast, which people would like to interview MMA... Excuse me. If you had a JRE-type podcast, which people would you like to interview MMA and non-MMA guests? Um, Well... If I had a JRE-type podcast, I wouldn't be doing a whole lot of MMA interviews, to be candid with you. Some. Definitely some. But only people who are willing to spill the beans. Nobody else uh, would be invited. That's a little hard to regulate, but, you know, that that would be the expectation. Like, you don't come on the show unless you're willing to talk. Um, So that would narrow a a wide scope of MMA uh, folks. Non-MMA, I mean, the folks whose books I read... Um, you know, I, I mean, in some ways I'm not nearly as suited for that kind of a thing as Joe, uh, or I don't think many of us are <laughs> right to be quite candid where you have this sort of wide swath of interests. I mean, the way in which my life works is I don't really have, uh, I mean, I feel like I try to, you know, get as much information as I can about the world around us, but that doesn't mean I have as much like... A lot of what you see, I think, I and mean, I'm certainly no expert on the JRE podcast in terms of the overall amount of uh, and guest type and what kind of guests he's had. But it does seem like a lot of it are functions of his general level of interest in either world affairs, combat sports, uh, or things that are of uh, experience or even hobbies to him. Hunting, um, you know, in that case it would be animal conservation or it would be, you know... Things along animal welfare, which he's talked about extensively, which gets into diet, which gets into sort of weight training. I mean, a lot of those things I actually I share, but there's you know there is there's a there he he just he he has this sort of really wide appetite for a lot of different things in a way that I might not by virtue I think of the way my life is constructed. I think Um, so. If you're asking me like what kind of guess I would have if I had a more liberal and I don't mean the political word. I mean like. Uh, open ended uh ability to book guests or you know latitude to book a wide variety of guests yeah I would get the people who the books are whose books I read I would get a lot of folks involved in weight training, probably a lot less involved in drugs um, i'd have a lot of anti doping conversations i would have the things that really interest me a lot of i mean i don 't know if there's any real interest in having a podcast about it, but like what things do I like as I get older I really like photography um uh I like videography, I love movies, right that kind of a thing. I, again, I don't think that I'm the pro- the proper person to be hosting any kind of platform in a major way for that kind of entertainment, but I mean the the Rogan experience is sort of really aptly named, right? These are things that swirl in his head and are a big part of his life and he's able to bring that to bear in, in such wide variety that it works. I don't think a lot of people have that much variety that they're interested in or have time to cultivate those interests as a consequence, you know, there's not many people who could do the kind of thing that he's doing. All right. With the co-main for 256 being three rounds, which, of course, will be Tony Ferguson and uh, Charles Oliveira, should Tony, who has a gas tank for days, double his volume and his output? Well, so let's look at his output, shall we? It's not as high as you might imagine. Um, Let's see here. So let's take a bit of a tail of the tape here on this. Alright, let's compare, shall we? Strikes landed per minute. Actually, no, I, let me let me correct that. It actually is pretty high. Um, yeah, it is pretty high. I, I take that back. I fully recant. Alright, his average fight time is 10 minutes and 52 seconds, which is pretty short. Um, his reach is 2 inches, so he's got a 2-inch reach advantage. Now, to the extent that he actually makes use of that is debatable, but... He does have that. Um, and this is the big difference. Strikes landed per minute, 5.8 for Tony. That is very high. Uh, 3.27 for Charles, which is about normal for an elite fighter. Maybe a little bit on the low side, but pretty normal. Striking accuracy for Tony is only 45%, but that's still more or less than, you know, anything around 50% is about right. This is where it gets a bit of a problem for him, though. Strikes absorbed per minute, 4.04 for Oliveira. 3.08, so both have positive, positive differentials, uh, Tony a little bit more so than Charles, but still, that four is high. I mean, he lands a lot, but that he eats a lot, too. And that, you might be like, oh, well, some of that is skewed from the last fight. It is, but before that last fight, he had 29 other fights in which they were incorporating data. That's a pretty large data set. So here's what I would say. In general, I think, whoops. Jesus Christ, I got this new keyboard that I touch things and it makes it go, sorry. Um, I would say that, in general, the idea of making Olivera work is probably not a bad one, especially on his feet. I don't mean making him work on the mat where things can sort of go bad and then he can get to a... You know, as, as good as Tony is on the ground, he will take risks. He'll take risks everywhere. But what I mean to say is if you can pressure Oliveira and make him work backwards and work backwards and work backwards where he's constantly circling on his feet, you're fighting his hands, he's having to fight your hands, um, and then you're really sort of pouring on that amount of punishment. If you can make that work, that's fine. But the issue with that could be, again, I'm not declaring to you that it will be, but the thing you have to sort of pay attention to is at the rate in which he does this, he gets hit four times a minute. That's a lot, okay? So if you up your volume, you might land more, and maybe that ends up being more beneficial for you, but if past this prologue, and it probably will be, that means you're going to get hit more. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, after the fight he's coming off of, is that the right strategy, or is maintaining the normal pace, which is already pretty high, is that good enough so that you're still going to get hit, maybe a little bit too much, but not so much that it ends up changing the equation from w to l um yeah i think some pressure is probably going to matter here i think putting the pressure on him early i think especially is going to be really important setting the tone deciding who takes center deciding who sort of really comes forward um but that all presupposes that charles Oliveira doesn't have an answer for that pressure at least not not a sufficient one I mean, who who did he beat? Not in his last fight, which was Kevin Lee, talking about Oliveira, but the one before that. It was Jared Gordon. Now, Jared Gordon, I don't think, is quite on the level of Tony Ferguson, but he's not a bad fighter, and how did he get beat? He walked, he tried to double jab and then cross his way um, into range with Oliveira, and Oliveira ate the first jab, then slipped the second one, and then made him pay for it, and was constantly grabbing his head as well when he tried to close in on range, meaning he was pretty good, at least in the case of Jared Gordon, of finding a way to make that pressure work against Gordon. And ultimately, that's how he actually won the fight. So, you know, it, you always want to think about, like, what are ways you can make somebody work more. If you This is why Habib is so... <clears throat> excuse me. <coughs> this is why Habib is so... Um, his style is so good for this. Because his style is generally quite laborious. Just for him to basically do what he does, it's very laborious. So just doing what he does is going to make somebody else really work. He has a totally abnormal style by virtue of its concentration in certain phases of the game. And he has a totally abnormal style not merely by the phase selection, but by the work rate required to make that phase selection operate effectively. And so just doing what he does just makes everybody have to get out of their comfort zone in a very significant way. Uh, can you do that effectively on the feet, given the way at age thirty-seven that Tony Ferguson fights? Maybe, but it will really depend on what tactical choices he has planned, because Charles Oliveira is actually pretty good at absorbing pressure, or I should say, has become pretty good. Uh, do you do you think Michael Chandler is overplaying his he- hand? At all in opponent selection. No. Uh, If CBS needed a Jake Paul interview, Jesus, do we even speak the same language? Is that like how Coco, the gorilla, the finger-painting gorilla, communicates with uh, the kitten or something? CBS needed a Jake Paul interview, would you be willing? No. I mean, if they told me... Folks, I've been offered interviews with both of them before. Straight up turn them down. Doesn't it? What the fuck am I going to get at <laughs> What do I mean? Are, you know. Listen. If I want to see what it's like for. Um, if I want to see what the life of like and the difficulties and the successes and the struggles were like of early underdeveloped humans. I'll go to the Natural History Museum down on Constitution Avenue. Uh, I don't. I don't have, what, what could we possibly get out of having a conversation with one another? Right. I mean, there are many other outlets they could go to. They get much more out of. It's not the kind of thing I'm interested in. Now, if CBS came to me, you know, metaphorically speaking, gun to my head and was like, do this interview or you're fired. Yeah, I would do it. Um, I don't want to get fired. But like, if they gave me any latitude at all, which they do, no, there's no chance I'm talking to them. So listen, if my job literally made it a requirement, well, then that's a different conversation. But to the extent that I have any say, no, I'm not talking to them. For what? What, what, what? You know, people just want to see the awkwardness. But honestly, just ask yourself, if you're me, what are you going to get out of it? Let somebody else talk to them. Let's let, you know, someone else who's on Twitch, you know, uh, or, or whatever. I'm not even against Twitch. which is fine. But, like, somebody of a different generation who's got a totally different audience who doesn't mind, you know, communicating with Howler monkeys. That's 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 the lane for them. Uh, Favorite movie of all time and why? Someone asked me this the other day, or a few chats ago. At the time, it was The Last Emperor, and then someone was—I think someone else asked me, like, you know, was the last time you saw it? Actually, it's been a long time since I saw it. Um, I really like the movie because a A, the story of it is incredible. Um, The I mean, you know, when you think about what goes into making a movie. That's sort of, I think, about how movies work. Like, the other day, for example, I was saying, it's not my favorite movie, but I watched Coco. You guys ever seen Coco, the Disney movie? Where, you know, it's, it's the Mexican kid, and it's, you know, he he it's, uh, David, uh, it's Day of the Dead, and, um, you know, he's trying to discover more about his family, and all this stuff happens to him, and blah, blah, blah. It's just a beautiful movie. It's, like, so spectacular. And and the reason why is because, it, it, you know, I can't tell you it's the best movie ever made, but I had said it's something pretty close to Not exactly, but pretty close to the perfect movie. Like, what do I mean by that? Well, you ever seen those credits, that roll, right? Producers, directors, animators, gaffers, the whole nine yards. Everything that goes into making a movie, sound design, cast, the whole bit. Somebody has to accomplish a task to get the movie to move forward. You have to hire certain actors. You have to hire the right ones. You have to have the right script. You have to have the right plot. You have to have a director who knows what kind of lenses they want to use, what focal length. You know how they want to set up shots. You have to have a good soundtrack or some, some kind of sound design behind it beyond just how it sounds in the ear, uh, which, all the way, also is a giant component of it all. Right. And that we're talking about normal movies. But for animators, there's a as competing but also similar set of concerns. There's all these different pieces that go into it. In the case of Coco, it was also songwriting. I mean, in every piece of that detail, can I say it's perfect? No, I cannot. But in every piece of that detail, can I say it was expertly done? No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And so parts of what makes The Last Emperor so so good for me. what are its, I don't even know what its ratings are on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Actually a good question. Let's see here. Uh, 1987. 89. Yeah, I might have to revisit it. It's been a long time since I've seen it. God, three and a half hours. I forgot how four, three, Almost four hours. Shits like Lawrence of Arabia. I'd have to go back and see. But I just remember the costume design on that, the acting was incredible, um, the interplay between some of the characters, the sort of story about um, you know, the ruling class of China and blah, blah, blah. There's just all these elements that I found incredibly interesting, uh, and it was really expertly done. But in, in all fairness, I don't know if I still feel the way that I have felt for a long time, I, I probably need to watch it again. Thoughts on Malay versus Velasquez, which is tonight, by the way. Velasquez is favored to win, y'all. What are the odds on that? Let's go to Best Fight Odds here, shall we? BestFightodds.com. So they've got, well, Vala- not much, but she's favored, minus 165. Juliana Vazquez- Velasquez, excuse me. Um, Where's the question? Pull it back up. Where do you think each would fall in terms of ranking if they were to jump to the UFC? Nobody's suggesting neither has anything for Shevchenko, but top five yeah probably top five I don't think that's crazy You look at the UFC women's top five Uh, and 125 pounds let's go through it here so you'd have uh Andrade Chukagian Murphy Uh, let's see Calder was at seven uh I at six Maya at five uh you know we're going through the line here but yeah probably in that space I think is very reasonable um, I think LLA has benefited from having a sort of bell tour I'm going to say to herself, but she has, she got the belt, I think a little bit early in her development. She was still able to keep, you know, win it and maintain it. But I mean, um, she has been able to get better and better and better while being champion. So it's put a spotlight on her that I, I think if she was in the UFC that maybe she wouldn't have, but I also feel like she's really growing into the role. And so that will be kind of interesting. Um, In the case of her opponent, I will cop to being not as well versed on her as I ordinarily am with these kinds of things. But she's undefeated. Uh, I did see the Bruna Ellen fight, which was the last one. She beat Christina Williams, but that's not necessarily saying a whole lot. Um, And then Alejandra Lara, she had the split decision win against her. Azul, that's the Colombian girl who fights out of Mexico. Yeah, I'm a little bit less of the belief that she can beat... Uh, she's from team Noguera. I'm a little bit less convinced she can beat elema as m- much as the odds makers and get granted. Of course, they put odds in a certain way as to induce betting. I tend to think Le actually probably will win this one, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a re- it's a totally fair question. Like women's flyweight. If you take some of the best out of Bellator and then the best UFC and you combine it, it's actually not the worst division. It's, it's pretty good. Uh, in certain parts anyway, top five, especially. So yeah, I mean, could she beat Andraj? You know, I'm skeptical of that. Um, But some of the other names that you saw in there, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Hi, Luke. Uh, Nurmagomedov recently said in a press conference that he will meet with Dana. Yeah, we saw this. At UFC 257 because of some of Habib's teammates will fight on that card. Do you think the UFC will try to get McGregor to provoke Habib at fight week? I don't think they're going to be really around each other. I wouldn't really. I wouldn't think too much about that. Uh, this is a question that comes to me every few years and it's worth answering, but the answer basically will stay the same until something significant changes with combat sports on an incredible rise and belts making better business decisions. Do you see them one day becoming as big as the UFC and if not bigger due to fighter relations? No, personally, I think they are making waves in the MMA world and are getting fighters that are easily UFC championship caliber. Yes. Their light heavyweight division now is pretty legit. I mean, we'll see what happens with Yoel Romero. If he goes over there and fights at 205, then it's like arguably better. But I went through it before. It was like Bader, I don't I don't know if he's still going to be 205. He might just be heavyweight at this point. But Bader did not get cut because he was bad. Bader got cut because the UFC hated him. All right, so there's that. Or not get cut. He fought out his contract. And he won, by the way, on his last fight. <clears throat> Excuse me. But they hated him. So there was that. So then you have Nemkov, who has a claim to be the best Light heavyweight on Earth, right? John Jones. I'm I'm not counting him in the discu- discussion because he has left the division. So you have Nemkov, who has a totally legitimate claim to being number one. Uh, you could debate it, but his 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 inclusion in the conversation is absolutely warranted. Then you have Corey Anderson, who was not released because he was bad. He was top ten, um, by the way. he Has a win over Glover Teixeira. Then you have uh, Anthony Ruble Johnson, who you know dislodged teeth of Glover Teixeira in 13 seconds when they fought. And you have Phil Davis, who barely lost to Nemkov, and again, did not get cut from the UFC because he was bad, but because they just didn't like his style of fighting. That's pretty legit. You add Yoel Romero to that; that's very legit. But look, there are there are, there are going to be a lot of interesting fighters in Bellator, in various weight classes. Some competing tonight, some not. The featherweight tournament, I think, is great, but you cannot compare them to the UFC. It's just not. It's not accurate. It's not reasonable. Um... They're not the same kind of organization. The UFC is a comprehensive place for the world's elite talent in all weight classes. That doesn't mean they have all the world's elite talent, um, but in general, with the exception of like women's atom weight, they more or less, inside of MMA, have weight classes to accommodate every space, uh, and in that space, I guess they don't have men super heavy as well, but these are very marginal divisions. Of the main ones that count, they have them all, and inside of them they have the majority of the world's elite talent. That's the reality. There is no competitor to that. Like, who else can make that claim? Nobody, by virtue of what the UFC is. That's not me saying they're necessarily a monopoly or monopsony. That's, that's for the courts to decide. But if you have all the divisions laid out, and you talk about the most, most important and ver- nearly all of them, um, they've got every one of those accounted for, and they've got virtually all the best fighters in them. That's just the reality. This is why when we get back to these roster cuts, folks are like, oh my God, they're going to change. They're going to get rid of all these guys for cheap um, contender series labor. And I said before, I don't know what they're going to do. We'll have to see. But I'm very skeptical of the idea that they're going to alter that reality. We have all these divisions. And inside of all of these silos, we have the majority of the world's most elite fighters in those weight classes. We're going to change that dynamic For cheaper fighters and just hope nobody notices? I mean, that sounds totally ludicrous. Might they do that on occasion? Might they do it in certain places? Yes. And might they do it enough that another organization like Bellator can then muster one or two divisions, like their, let's say, their featherweight division or their uh, light heavyweight division, that are good enough to at least rival um, some of the divisions inside UFC to be pretty competitive? Sure. Sure. But top to bottom on the roster, it's not really close. And it can't be. So when you say Bellator is going to change it, we're talking about an organization in UFC that has 80%, 85% of the world's elite talent. And you're talking about one in Bellator that has 10% or so. I mean, orders of magnitude difference. People get it confused because Bellator has some big names. They have some very good divisions. And they're on with CBS, Right? And who knows how that's going to blossom in the future. They might go back to big CBS. They're on CBS Sports right now. And they've been on Spike. And they've got you know Scott Koku, who used to run Strike Force and blah, blah, blah. It's a good organization. They do good things. But they're not a competitor to the UFC. Not even close. Um, they are very much a tier down. Um, and so, it's not, it's not a slight. It's just an observation. And so when folks are like, oh, they're going to make big waves. Again, I, I, I tend to think that there's some reason for optimism for their growth. But what do you mean when you say make big waves or big changes? Are you suggesting there'll be some kind of power shift? And maybe you're not, but for folks who might be thinking there's might be a power shift coming, I mean it would require an enormous gutting of the UFC's roster to get even close. I don't I don't really foresee that. What's one topic where you change your mind completely in MMA and one not in MMA? Well, anti doping would be the biggest one where I changed my mind. I've said this before, I used to have conversations with Travis Tiger all the time. I had not thought much about it. And I had sort of gone along with everyone else thinking this is a scourge or, you know, I don't know that I ever hated it quite as much as everybody else, but, you know, it's the wrong thing to do. And um, what we have to do is, you know, hammer these guys and that will fix the problem and blah, blah, blah. Turns out it's all bullshit and, um, you know, it's nonsense. And so that was a major change in my view, um, what's one topic where you change your mind completely in MMA and one not in MMA, what's another one I changed my mind completely in MMA, or sorry, not in MMA, um, changed my mind completely, hmm, I think I've talked about this before, um, Changed my mind completely. I mean, I've had—I told you guys this before. Like, um, you know, both of my parents grew up uh, as right-leaning politically. My father worked for the first senior George Bush when he was ambassador to the UN. My father worked in his press office. Um, My mother was, you know, fucking loved Rush Limbaugh for all those kinds of things. But in general, I think both had. Uh, obviously by virtue of the way they, their lives went, sort of an internationalist point of view, which is not the same as globalist. I don't mean it in that sense. But but rather that, you know, sort of in a post-NATO world, that most of these sort of alliances would be used to um, keep peace or prevent avoidable conflict and yada, yada. And then when Bush Jr., W., went into Iraq, that that was a very radicalizing moment for me and my entire family. It made us really rethink everything we thought about those people uh, and everyone around them, the neocons and everything else. That was a real change in my life, a major, major, major change, which isn't to say I had like this sort of alignment with them beforehand in the way that my parents might have. But, uh, whatever, whatever worldview I had before then was completely turned upside down after that. That was a, that was a major shift. And how just utterly irresponsible it all was, and in the human toll, and in what it meant for the world and for you know um, the Middle East in particular, and then the lives of American military servicemen. And I mean, it was just it was a deeply radicalizing moment. What do you think of Brandon Moreno's spectacular jujitsu tattoo? A truly wonderful blunder. Did he misspell it? Is it? Did he spell it? Did he spell it the wrong way? Let's see uh, that's funny. I did not know that that's true. Um, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. That's pretty wild. I mean what are you going to do you know you, you should definitely rethink here's here's I told this I told this to everybody. anybody who's got a good tattoo anybody okay, almost anybody. Almost anybody who has a good tattoo, like a one where you can be like, okay, maybe it's for you, maybe it's not for you, but you can look at it and you can say, "Hey, that's a great, that's a well done tattoo." Almost all those people have at least one, if not several, bad tattoos. Now, this one you could have fixed with a spell check. That's a little bit different. If that's in fact true, what he has, I've I've not seen it. Um, On the other hand, you know, it just most people don't don't know how to get tattoos i you know i've got a a, a bunch of them uh, i've never i didn't realize it until many years in how to do it right like you need to figure out from concept what you want you need to have a consultation ahead of time if you really want to do it right it needs to be the appropriate size it needs to match the body contours you probably need to pay a lot more for it than you're expecting um you know again these are general rules of things you need to go to somebody who's a specialist in the style that you want. In general, uh, if they can't do it, they should refer you to somebody who can. You should be, you know, you should be prepared to pay a lot for it. Like, there's all kinds of like you need to do it the right way. It takes planning and time and then execution. And most people just, you know, have buddies who do it, or they will go to some fuckhead, you know, low end shop that will just, you know, throw it on them real quick or whatever. So listen. Uh, You know, actually, I was talking to a tattooist the other day, uh, um, a friend of a friend, and uh, he was telling me that there's a little bit too much black on one side, like just too much dark shading to really understand the full picture. But that in general, um, if you like traditional styles of tattoos, that the gorilla on the chest of McGregor was actually really good. It was actually a well done tattoo. But what they didn't understand was why would you get a traditional style gorilla? on your chest and then get sort of like a portrait realist tiger on your stomach. You have sort of these two very different kinds of tattoos right on top of each other in big, bold ways. But you know, people like what they like. So stupid ass question. I'm going to skip. Which UFC fighters do I think will get cut? It's going to be a combination, probably, of, let's see, age. So somebody uh, who's probably closer to 40 than 30. Again, this will be, you know, it won't be a hard and fast rule. Like, there might be some older people who don't get cut. There might be some younger people who do. So keep that in mind. But as a general rule, I'm expecting something like, if you're on the other side of 35, um, if you are a former legend who's, Clearly, best days are behind you. Doesn't mean you're bad, but your best days are probably behind you. Um, If you're one of those who's on that sort of bubble, but you're also expensive, um, which again, it's not going to be a huge amount of people, it's going to be a limited amount, but there'll be some. Uh, If you just had a bad record, you know, you just haven't really done really well. If you've not been consistent, right? Uh, If they call you up, are you able to meaningfully get back out there quickly? Right? Do you have fast turnover? I mean, Angela Hill went from somebody who I think was butting heads with UFC staff a little bit until they figured out, like, if you call her up, dude, she's ready to go. Now, she got COVID. Okay. Uh, There's only so much you can do about that. But in general, you know, they give her the phone call, she's ready to go. They love that kind of stuff. They love it if you can make a fast turnaround. So people who have not been so good about that, if you've been injury prone, you've been out a long time, you know, that's going to really probably affect you. If you've not really been able to curry any kind of a fan base, like, the, people just can't tell if you're coming or going. If they've got too many from the same kind of geographic location, right, we don't need this many fighters from, I'm going to make up someplace, Germany. I don't think that that's really a thing that they're thinking about for Germany, but there might be some other place where we have just this overfill of fighters from an area that we can't really service or don't really have use for in terms of our marketing issues. And if you're not especially good or stand out, that kind of a thing. So there's a lot of different things in play there between cost, age, record, future, um, past, Um, popularity, geographic relevance. Um, There might be some as a function of weight class. We have too many welterweights. We don't need this many welterweights. We don't have any use for them. We can't keep them in rotation. They just don't match the needs, for which we have. So if if there's an overfill in one particular weight class, you might see a lot of them get cut. So it'll be probably along those lines. It's more just about roster maintenance. And some of that will involve painful deletions, right, from the, again, there will be some names you're like, damn, really? There'll be some of those, but the whole, the overarching issue is, are they going to do it enough to change the, the real stranglehold that they have on the world's elite MMA talent? Why the fuck would they do that? You know, it's just very hard for me to believe that's true, but I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. Maybe they have some other plans. Who the hell knows? Okay. Okay. Megan Anderson versus Kayla Harrison, who wins probably Kayla um, If you could revisit one event in your life, what would it be? Wow, that's a great question. Revisit you mean like do it over man. Um, phew. <laughs> Made a lot of mistakes along the way, uh, but had some good times too. Had some great successes. Um, if I could revisit just one, Christ on crutches. Um, it's just an event, right? So I can't like go back to a chapter. It's just sort of a moment in time. I, I don't know. I'd have to. I mean, Jesus, there's so many. I have to think about them a lot. I mean, maybe the last time I saw my mom or something, right? Uh, like if I could go back in time and I knew that was the last time I'd ever see her. I know it sounds kind of sad, but like maybe I would have done more with it, you know, or I don't know, try to intervene in some way to make it that it wouldn't be the last time. Like, yeah, probably probably something like that. I mean, all those other ones, it's not like there's things I, I didn't want to do differently, but it wouldn't be a singular event. There's like... There's like chapters of my life, I, and that sounds like a little bit like, oh my God, there was you know, four years that went wrong. I don't mean it that way, but you, what I mean to say is there were things I would like to be different about my life, but I couldn't fix it in a singular moment. It wasn't that, like the entire chapter was bad. No, qu- quite the opposite. There may have been many good things about it, but in order to write what I didn't like about it, it would be a painstaking process. So if I had just one moment, it would probably be something like that, right? If I got one more chance to go back and do that correctly. Um, how do you think the country should solve the student debt crisis moving forward? Right, this is sort of a funny one, right? So there's basically there's two sort of competing theories about it. One is that essentially you could almost wipe out all virtually all student debt um, and uh, by executive decree more or less. Uh, or the other ones is uh, the other way to do it is I mean people are at least mostly sympathetic to some student debt being relieved. There are relieved, excuse me. There are very few people who are like fuck student debt, just live with it. I mean, understand the nature of student debt. It's not even something, uh, historically speaking, I, and I think this is still the case. You can't you can't like declare bankruptcy and get out of it. Um, you know, or, or, or you know, so, okay, there might be a way. If you went to trade school and you had you know a trade where you used your hands for some kind of manual labor, specialized manual labor, but manual labor, and your arms got chopped off in some kind of horrible accident, yeah, they might relieve you of your student debt there. But in general, they're not going to relieve you of it. Um, so it's a very, very sticky kind of debt. And obviously, given the nature of um, the ballooning costs of higher education in the United States of America, it can be a pretty substantive one. Like I had a f- previous girlfriend. She's now an attorney for the EPA, but um, Jesus, I mean, her student debt was, you know, I mean, you could buy a mansion on the amount of debt that she had. Uh, I think she's doing okay now, but she had a rough, you know, I mean, there's a lot of years where she was eating ramen noodles, you know what I mean? Like it was a long time before she was even paid down a, a significant chunk of it. And, and, and even then it was like, what was really, did it have to all be this way? Anyway, so the first one is to just sort of decree it all to go away um, for the most part. But there's another sort of competing claim, which is essentially to means test it. Um, right? So, uh, how much is the debt? Um, how much is the debt relative to your ability to pay it back? There is, <clears throat> what you have to understand is there is incontrovertible data that shows that were you to wipe out most college debt, who would that be mostly servicing? And it would be mostly servicing high income earners or people who are f- uh, from families of high income earners. Okay. So, the problem with that is, as most people, will tell you is, why are we bailing out people who are high-income earners? And it's a very reasonable question. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking, hey, okay, I understand that student debt can be crippling, but maybe we should do something about it, right? Um, I am not of the belief that means testing is the best answer. On this one, I tend to think that the majority of student debt should just be eliminated wholesale. Um, I tend to think that when you get to means testing, you give a lot of very incomplete um s- uh, relief to more complex problems the reason why i'm not in favor of that is what i would say is a couple things one you can be somebody who went to duke and then you got a mba and something you could be making a lot of money and you can more or less be able to pay it back or whatever the case may be but that doesn't mean that uh if we didn't relieve this you know let's say i, I know plenty of people who had 100 200 300000 or more in student debt, especially if they went to grad school. I mean, that was, it, this is very easy to find. These are people that would have bought homes a lot sooner. They would have reinvested through other consumer purchases, um, started a family much earlier. You would have much more um, life cycle turning by virtue of having that debt relieved. Okay, that's the first thing I'd say. I think the second thing I would say is, um, I don't think, mean if they did just means testing, that wouldn't be the end of the world. But... Um, these half – continuous half measures I think is a real problem with the way in which our country currently addresses all the issues that we have. We take a lot of very, very small steps that aren't all as nearly as meaningful as they could be. There's no real reason to not do means testing even if there is some ability for the people who could be getting relief to pay it back. But the bigger one is folks are saying, well, Jesus, why are we bailing out people who have – and again, the data is clear. Like you'd be bailing out people of the higher economic order – The reason you would want to do that is because that would be one among many steps we should take to help out (laughs) working Americans, whether they are blue-collar or whether they are white-collar. I mean, part of the problem with the argument about the relief of student debt is that they make it out to be like, this is what we should do, and that's it. There's not – I mean, there's so much more that can be done, um, whether it relates to other incentives in education to help out people who have – who want to get vocational training, uh, about the nature of accepting debt in the first place, about um, what are some forms of debt that disproportionately affect low-income workers, what are some forms of policy relief that we can implement towards them. It's really not about doing one and then, you know, we're done here. That To me, that would be the first step among many that you might want to take inside of higher education, particularly post-secondary, and then uh, well, actually, uh, exclusively post-secondary, but even then, I mean post-post-secondary. Um, and then that would be the first among many steps. You would have to do a whole lot more to address the very real needs of uh, middle and then lower-income Americans to have uh, uh, the same kinds of debt relieved upon them, uh, whether it's student debt or not. Uh, whatever the economic harms, whether there is, you know, one of the biggest issues is transgenerational wealth. What are some what are some issues we can do about that? Housing discrimination, affordable housing. Um, again, inside education. What are some ways to get to impact? Uh, um, vocational training what about lowering the cost for state schools what about making barriers to entry a little bit you know less significant for them I mean there's a number of things you can do so like the argument is oh let's not bail out the rich well let's not exclusively bail out higher earning Americans but would you be benefiting the overall American economy and especially those people's lives in a pretty significant way by relieving that debt I mean there's no argument about that it's very clear It's very clear you would do that. It's just that shouldn't be the only thing that we do. We should do a whole lot of things that really (laughs) uh, go to the heart of... I mean, this is how we should fight, right? You and I should not fight along culture war. We should fight along class, Uh, right? There is way too much economic distribution... That is happening in a way that does not benefit enough people. Um, Yes, again, bailing out higher education students, predominantly who are from uh, upper-middle-income earners, isn't the best example per se. But in general, what we want is a situation where we're not fighting over, you know, do you like guns, do you not like guns. We'll be fighting together against corporate bailouts, against... um, a lack of access to uh, higher education for uh, low and in- middle income earners, a lack of uh, access to affordable health care. Let's fight along those terms together, not uh, not along the other ones. I think that's the way we need to reshift our conversations and our politics. With countries like Russia and Georgia having a lot of talent emerge in the last couple of years, what countries do you think will have a wave of fighters Come into MMA. Anything in the Caucasus Mountains? Caucasus Mountains is going to be ripe for the picking. But you go, why don't we see more from Cuba? I suspect it's a lack of access to uh, uh, training. Puerto Rico, I don't know quite exactly. I would imagine something similar. Thailand, you see a lot of them coming from Thailand. I don't know what. what I mean, you see a shitload coming from Thailand. You mean like native ties? There might be a recruitment issue there. The Netherlands, you see a bunch. Um, they all have good fighters from other forms of martial arts, why not MMA? Really, MMA? You don't have good fighters from the Netherlands and MMA in MMA, <laughs> dude. You got a fuckload from the Netherlands. Uh, maybe less so now than you had previously. I, don't, I don't, even I'm not even really sure if that's true, but sometimes the cultures are going to have their own. Like my travels through Latin America, generally has not been that they don't want. Oh, there's, there's no, there's no. Culture of combat sports, it's just concentrated in certain ways. Boxing training is significantly cheaper to get at a higher level than it is for MMA. It's just, it's a lot cheaper. It's very expensive to get MMA training, generally speaking. And there has to be access to coaching, there has to be access to facilities, there has to be access to resources. Much of those things, let's take Puerto Rico for example, are built out there. I mean, how many good boxers have come from Puerto Rico? Uh, A metric ton. A ass load have come from from uh, Puerto Rico they got this new kid what's his name Edgar Berlanga. is that his name 17 and0 17 first round knockouts I mean this guy's an absolute monster Joe fat Joe is always blowing up his Instagram and he's just the latest one you know there's just there, there's that the, we just watched the Hector Camacho documentary on Showtime like there's tons so if you want to get good boxing training from Puerto Rico you probably can um Cuba doesn't have a for-profit industry so that's going to limit it Thailand has all kinds of camps, a.k.a. Um, um, uh, Tiger Muay Thai, the whole nine yards. They Now, they recruit internationally, and they reproduce internationally. Again, you're talking about native Thais. There might be some, uh, I think there's like some poverty issues where, or also like, you know, why do, why do the kids fight? The kids fight in Thai boxing so that they can get money to their poor families. Like, it doesn't have the same... There's not the same life opportunities for elective combat sports in that kind of a way. That's the best guess I can make without being an expert on this. And the Netherlands, they're heavy into kickboxing. I don't know how many active Dutch fighters we have relative to how many we used to have, but it's still pretty high, I think. Will Hall versus Thor be watching? Yeah, you're going to see this. Uh, Eddie Hall had a 500-kilo deadlift, and then Thor had the 501-kilo deadlift. And now they're going to box each other. It's going to be the worst shit ever. But I am going to watch it because I, I am, I am nothing, if not an incredible hypocrite. I mean, I'm, sta- I'm like stating outright that fight is going to be shit. But because I also love strength sports, and you've got two of the best pullers of all time, boxing, it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be absolute ass. I think Hall is going to beat him. I think Thor is just, and when you get super muscly like that, they have no mobility. You know, there's not much they can do and. They don't have a lot of that same kind of athletic coordination. Hall used to be a swimmer, you know, and I think tends to have a little bit more dexterity in that way. So I'm expecting him to be a little bit, you know, spicier come fight time, but Thor is going to get, Thor, he can barely move, man. I mean, he can pull weight and he can press it overhead and he can carry it. But I don't think he can do much else. Look, what is your favorite personal weight division to watch in the UFC right now? Ooh, good question. Overall division, I'm still going to say lightweight, but bantamweight is probably right there. Um, Who is your fight of the year pick? <sighs> probably Poirier Hooker. I have to think a little bit more about it, but probably that one. I mean, how many times when a fight was over, and I said this when that fight was over, how many times when a fight was over, I mean, you always respect what they do, of course, right? Anyone with a a functioning brain looks at them killing each other out there and saying to themselves, wow, man, that's really, you know, it's impressive what they do, and I have respect for the sacrifices that they make for our entertainment, even if they're getting paid. But how many times when a fight is over do you say, wow, man, like wherever you were, by yourself in front of your computer, this is where I watch all my fights right here, Uh, or with with family or wherever. How many times have you been able to say, that was a privilege to be here to watch that live? That was a privilege. Because even if you watch that fight afterwards, it's not the same privilege. You got to catch it. You got to catch that lightning in a bottle a little bit. And when that fight was over, man, I felt, I felt. A little bit like I had won the lottery a little bit, you know, uh, that you won. I mean, not, not $10 million, but certainly a scratch off. I mean, maybe more than that too. Like you had one of those experiences where it's going to be hard to play that one back. It's going to be a long time before you're like, wow, that was man. That was something I had tremendous. And for both fighters too, tremendous respect for what they were able to do and what they were able to show. And I, you know, my deepest admiration. It's not many times you feel that way. So I'm probably going to lean that direction. But I'm sure that there's a, a host. I mean, there was a lot of good fights this year. For all of the problems in the world, there was a lot of good fights this year. So uh, if that's not the one you have, you might have a better argument. That's just the one that first comes to mind. LT, are you referencing Psalm 118.22 um, on your Twitter bio when you refer to the stone that the builder refused? Well, I think that's where it comes from. Uh, It's also a Bob Marley song, and it's also from the Boondocks intro. I am the stone that the builder refused. There's a whole story behind that. Uh, You said recently that you're trying to no longer eat pork. Yeah, it's true. What are your personal opinions on the ethics of eating meat and or consuming animal products like dairy? Well, this is very complicated. Um, Basically, I tend to believe that Uh, between, if you look at all of the, I know people are like, oh, well, there's also harms when you have, um... look, factory farming is a moral atrocity. And it's hard to make the argument that it's not. Now, what the solutions are, are actually fairly complicated. And what kinds of farming are less destructive than others uh, is actually a little bit more complicated um, than I think, you know, your most hardcore vegan advocate would want to tell you. But, the reality is what we do to these animals to make them consumable um, is a moral horror. And so in many ways, drawing a almost any dividing line that you draw is going to be quite arbitrary if you're trying to really solve for moral harm. But I tend to think doing something is better than nothing, even if it is inconsistent. I think starting with a place where I just, I just cannot in good conscience eat an animal that has a complex emotional existence, a social life, um, familial ties is smarter than other animals that we do not eat and domesticate. I just, I, I cannot in good conscience eat this animal. And, and, and I realize that like sort of like, you know, banging your fist down on the, on the, on the platform here and tell, asking to see the manager and pulling a Karen. I am not trying to convert you with this. It's really not what I'm up against. You're asking me how I feel. I'm telling you how I feel. People are going to feel differently, and they're going to have, in many cases, good reasons for it. Right? Um, You know, Joe Rogan's an interesting case here because he goes and hunts his own meat. I don't have the luxury of doing that, so I haven't given up meat eating entirely, which will make me a hypocrite. But again, I tend to think that if you're looking at issues around um, water uh, safety, uh, if you're looking around issues of sustainable farming, if you're looking at issues with, you know, the growth of uh, antiviral drugs and uh, and how that's being impacted. By factory farming, there are a lot of problems that could at least be somewhat addressed, if not solved, by a significant reduction in the way in which we currently factory farm. And so I think if Americans ate a lot less meat, starting with whatever starting point you wanted to go to, chickens being the biggest one, right? Pork is not even the biggest um, uh, meat that we can, animal protein that we consume annually then I think you can begin to make a difference. So I'm not here to tell you I've got some moral, morally enlightened position. These are all very difficult things. Um, because then even if you go full-on vegan, there actually begins to raise another series of issues around what kind of substitution in farming do you get, what kind of harms do those farms raise. But I, I, just, I just do not wish to eat an animal that, is, that has the qualities that um, pigs do and i can't i just i can't in good conscience do it um i don't feel the same way about beef but i probably should because i've seen i've seen the uh, the same or similar arguments made about the complexity of their lives and the abuse that they go through and it's uh it's terrible it's absolutely terrible F- factory farming is an absolute moral horror and what we are doing is you know it's weird right because the other part is as meat consumption grows and and Parts of Asia that were previously destitute, uh, and in particular parts of, of Africa, you're actually seeing the hunger gap close by virtue of their access to meat. Now, I don't know if they have the exact same issues um, in some of these smaller countries that we do with factory farming, but in the case of like you know China, for example, which has massive pork consumption, they do not necessarily have the best record when it comes to animal welfare. I mean, I want to live in a world where we can have sustainable farms that don't cause pollution, that don't impoverish. Farmers. That's another big issue with all of this, and that we don't ritually torture and murder uh, sentient animals that have complex, uh, you know, intellectual and, or I should say, psychological and emotional lives on an annual basis. I, how, how we get there, you know, <laughs> good luck trying to figure that out. But I think as a starting point for me, this is where I am, and I do believe something is better than nothing. It goes back to the sort of the means testing of the of the student that... One solution might actually be better than the other, but I think even if you're in the camp that, like, oh, we should eliminate all student debt, and they end up doing just the means testing part, that that is better than nothing. Uh, What is one realistic improvement Nate Diaz could make to his game at this point in his career that would most radically improve his chances of success? Well, what is he, 30? How old is Nate? It's like, 35, something like that. Somewhere around there. Thirty-five. You turn thirty-five in April. Um, well, when you're thirty-five, man, you're, it's kind of baked into what you do, and there's not a whole lot of change that is realistic at that point. Um, there's some you can introduce. One. Okay, so you're asking about one realistic improvement Nate Diaz could make to his game that would most radically improve his chances of success. Head movement. A little bit of head movement. I think taking a little bit less damage, getting cut a little bit less. Let me look at his numbers here because he got tuned up a little bit in that um, Jorge Masvidal fight, right? Let's see. I mean, he still has a better. He still has a positive differential, but he's got a, You know, he takes a lot of shots. Strikes landed per minute, he's at four point six two. Strikes absorbed, he's at three point seven eight. So it's still a positive, but it's getting. It's a little bit tight. You know, he got knocked down twice against Masvidal. He ate 112 significant strikes there. He ate 70 from Pettis. He ate 165 from McGregor. He ate 60-plus uh, from McGregor before that. He ate 103 from... I mean, even in the Michael Johnson fight, he ate 103. So some kind of, of head movement, right? Just getting out of the way of things a little bit. Because he, I mean, he does a little bit of the covering thing, which makes him take shots to the body. There's not a whole lot you can do about that. If you're going to cover your face, they're going to they're going to chew you up. But I, I kind of believe if you've got a good jab and you can... And not just leaning, but I mean side-to-side side slipping, right? And, and then setting it up a little bit. I tend to think that would actually preserve him. Especially for a guy who's better late, right? Because he has such a good gas tank. Not taking as much early damage, I think, would be really beneficial for him. And I don't think it's that... I mean, it's, he's not going to get very good at it given the age. But any... Again, something's better than nothing, right? Uh, Why did you move most of your content to the Morning Combat channel after working every day to build it up to over 100K? I was basically a day one subscriber to the LT channel and was disappointed when you did, even though I love BC and Morning Combat. I'm working on some, I know no one believes this, it's fine, you don't have to. But I'm trying to get some stuff going for that channel here a little bit. Um, Sunday Digest is every Sunday now. There wasn't a real need to do a breakdown last week, but after this weekend there will be. So I'll have that on Monday. I'll have uh, technical difficulties on Monday. My goal is to get three videos up a week. Maybe more after that, but that's the goal is three. I mean, I've sort of been thinking about this. It was like, I have a Patreon account. It's not active. I'm not going to activate it now. But part of me is like, I just want to activate it that way. I could do not just YouTube stuff, but I could do all kinds of other things, um, whether it be written or, you know, or or just straight audio. By the way, there's that opportunity as well. Um, but I don't know if I'm ready to make that kind of commitment just yet. I want to get MK a little bit further along before I do. But believe me, it's not that I don't want to do those things. It's just I want to. I, I, I need to. I need to. I need to have a, bit, a more coherent plan, and I really don't. But I'm sort of slowly putting one together. So I apologize, but don't worry too much. Who's your favorite sports junkie? I like them all equally, which is what you say about your favorite children. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I didn't see this. Thoughts on Izzy partying with COVID denier Jake Paul and his posse of smooth-brained zombies after the jones tyson card i didn't see them partying i saw them bantering uh after the fact when the fight was over in like a hotel lobby which wasn't so bad but you know listen man i mean listen here's the deal even if he gets covid he has to go do quarantine in in new zealand so you know mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm do you think they should make the featured prelim five rounds? No. But they should make... Uh, there should be a way to do non-title fights that are co-mains as uh, five rounds, I think. How many times a day do you think BC Google Images Rocco? Oh. He probably has some kind of program, an app on his phone that just, you know... Like, a, like a, You know how his screensaver is probably just a random photo generator of Rocco terrorizing women, you know? Mm-mm-mm-mm. Do you think we are headed in a new direction with the sport, given the changing of rosters in multiple organizations? Um, there appears to be something of a shift happening. But let's see what the shift looks like before we make any bold declarations about it. I tend to think it's a modest adjustment at most, but we will see. Look, you always mentioned that MMA is a young sport and is developing through the, uh, through the minute. Therefore, fighters are becoming better and more round, well-rounded with each generation, yet... People don't think this way about boxing. Many people still see Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Robinson as the greatest ever. Do you personally see them as the best still, or has newer generations passed them? Well, in certain cases, you know, you do have athletic training being better than ever, you know, and access to uh, a wider population in certain ways with the globalization of boxing that has given you um, a certain overall level of performance uh, boost in, 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 in certain divisions or in certain times. But um, you know you got to understand something. Boxing has been around for well over a century, well over a century. I think we're going on a century and a half almost. And so we have not reached the end uh, the the end of boxing where it can't get any better. It certainly can. But if you think about it, um, think about lifting. Right. This is the way. I, I don't know if this is the best explanation, but this is the one I'm going to give you. If you are a novice lifter and you begin to lift for about a year, you're going to make pretty substantial, if you you do it right, you know, you sleep right, you eat right, you hydrate right, you have good programming, you stick to it, you stay injury-free, right? You will make significant progress in a year. You'll make significant progress in two years. And then when you get to the intermediate stage, you can continue to make pretty good progress, but it will take a little bit longer um, if you added 15 pounds of muscle, whatever the time uh, time frame was for that, to add another 15 will take a lot longer. And then you get to a certain point where you become an advanced lifter. And if you're an advanced lifter, you are basically at the point where you are pretty close to your genetic ceiling, your genetic potential. And, of course, you could take drugs. but let's take that out of the equation. You're just going to work naturally. You can still get stuff done, but your programming has to be very good. You probably have to add a lot more volume than you once did. You just have to do a lot more to get out of it. With the growth of boxing, decade over decade over decade, that's not true. Just really in who it recruited within the United States, but then globally, and blah blah blah. Um, and this happening for long periods of time prior to you know this generation of fights, it's not that there haven't been improvements per se uh, in the last twenty years in terms of what kind of boxing talent we've seen. You know, Lomachenko, I think, is pretty special historically speaking. But you got to a level of maturity in boxing. Certainly, let's say, in the heavyweight division, in many ways, Anthony Joshua was pretty big, but in terms of, like say, skill level with Muhammad Ali, you got to a level of, of um, maturity a long time ago. So there, are, there can be improvements and there can be adjustments, but you've reached a... I'm, I'm, ceiling's not quite the right word. But you've reached a point where any kind of improvement after that is going to be fairly incremental. Now, the biggest improvement has been the size of the athletes. Deontay Wilder's huge. Justin Fury's huge. Anthony Joshua, huge. So there's been, Foreman was big, but, you know, there's sort of this array of monsters. Um, There's a big change there, but, like, in the case of Wilder, like, is he as talented as Foreman or Shavers or Ali or Liston uh, or, uh, or, or, excuse me, I shouldn't say Liston, but Frazier? Like, no. Like, not even close, you know? Um, I mean, go look at the technical maturity of, my favorite boxer of all time is Marvin Hagler. I mean, go look at some of the things he was doing in the fucking 80s you know, uh, you had a very significant level of, of, uh, in-game maturity at that point, which MMA is only now really, I'm not even saying getting to, but it's still very much going through this tumultuous process of self-learning. Like fighters, that basically realize you have to stand a certain way apart. You kind of your fates and thanks. What low kicks work best? What jabs work best? How do you manage a round? I mean, what what's the value of an underhook? Blah, blah, blah. Like, None of this was obvious. None of it was explained. It had to be learned socially over time. Many of the things in boxing, you know, um, long before Ali got there, they had figured that part out. Those kinds of sort of best practices. Um, So training has gotten better. Athletes have gotten better. They've certainly gotten bigger. Uh, But technical sophistication of the game, while it has made improvements, the level of improvements from 1900 to 19, let's say, 70, are much bigger than they were from 1970 to I don't know 2020. Um, there's, it's gotten better in many ways, but you've reached a you've reached a point where those increments are going to be harder to come by. All right, let's see if there's one more. True or false? Nate Diaz would lose but his BJJ would allow him to go the full five rounds with Habib. That's an interesting question. Um, maybe? Maybe? That's actually a really good question. Right? Because he would get taken down, no problem, and he would get pounded on, probably a lot, but he has a good chin, and he has enough jiu-jitsu to threaten underneath and make Habib work for it. Yeah, maybe. I still tend to think he might get polished off a little bit later. But if it was three rounds, I'd like his chances to go the distance. Yeah, sure. That's a, that's a fair question. Do you still keep in touch with Jeff Wagenheim? We talk on social media on occasion. Are you on good terms with him? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Were you at a colonoscopy yesterday or a job interview? Neither. Neither. Everything's fine, though. We're good to go. Don't worry. I'm not going anywhere. I didn't have a... F- Who... Why? Listen, folks. Let me explain something to you about my life, okay? I have worked two jobs since college. Since college, I've always had two jobs. I've never had one job. All, every time I did my taxes, I got payment from this employer and then this one. And sometimes I'd have three or four if they were contract jobs or whatever. But usually I had one job and a part-time job. Always. I have always done that. This is the first time in my life I have not had that. I, 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 well, since, since I started working as an adult. That's not an exaggeration. This is the first time in my adult life I have one employer. Now, I get paid for my YouTube stuff, um, but I'm trying to figure out a good plan of action for that. You know, uh, So I am as happy as I could be in terms of my professional ambition. I've said it before. Have I reached the pinnacle? No, but have I done a lot? I've been on national TV. I've been on pay per view. You know, I got to go on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. I've you know interviewed all the, the bi- biggest fighters in the world. You know, um, I've been on the biggest MMA websites. I have you know. You just go down the list of things that someone at MMA media wants to do. I'm lucky as shit. I got the chance to do almost all of it. Almost all of it. I am thrilled. I cannot. This is not me. Blowing my employer, I'm telling you the truth. I am very relieved to be where I am in my life. Super relieved. Don't take it for granted at all. Um, and I don't have any. I don't have any desire to go anywhere else. I want to build what I've got with Brian Campbell. I want to build what I've got with Showtime, and I want to see where we can go with that because I believe in it. It's a project that that is one that we cooked up together, and. I it would take it would take a shitload to get me away from that, and CBS already takes good care of me. I'm happy, y'all. Believe it or not, I might be miserable about other things, but in terms of my career ambitions, like this is why y'all ask me questions about people I used to work with. I don't give a fuck. Like, are they succeeding? Great. Are they failing? That's great too. Like, I I don't I don't care. I I am. I've done a lot. I've seen a lot. I felt like I've made a contribution. I've got an audience who, uh, you know, you all like to rake me over the coal sometimes, but I think you also care. I've got a partner who I can trust. I've got a a corporate parent who has made, on paper, uh, a significant contribution to the project um, that I believe in, that, that I've created with another guy. And I'm happy. I'm happy. All kinds of things I want to achieve still, but I'm not, you know... I'm not looking to go anywhere. As for the colonoscopy, I need to schedule one. But no, I did not get one. Uh, if you must know, my pet had to get uh, surgery. She's fine. But that's that's what it was. So, anyway. Okay. All right. Well, With that in mind, hit the subscribe button. Tell your friends about it. Fucking uh, thumbs up on the video. Do whatever you have to do. Okay. So, tonight... After the Bellator fights, Brian Campbell and I will be on CBS Sports HQ tomorrow, morning combat at 11. I think we're also going to do another CBS Sports HQ preview for the the, uh, Joshua and Pulev fight plus UFC 256. And then I don't know if we're going to do a post-fight show because I did a post-fight show for the last Figueredo pay-per-view and it didn't do all that great. So I don't know if we're going to do one, but we'll at a bare minimum have some kind of reaction video out for you either that night or the next morning, yeah? So be on the lookout for that, all right? Thank you guys so much for watching. Until next time.